Welcome back to Supreme Myths. I'm excited today to have as my guest, Professor Jeremy Tellman of the Oklahoma City University School of Law. Uh, Jeremy got his BA from Columbia, his MA from Cornell, his PhD from Cornell, and his JD from NYU. He clerked um, for Federal Circuit Court Judge, worked for Sidley in Austin. Uh, he is an expert in contracts law. He's an expert on comparative law and he's an expert on originalism, where he's written quite a bit. Today, we're going to talk mostly about originalism and court reform. Those are separate conversations. Jeremy, welcome to the, to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Eric. Um, as you know, I'm a huge fan of your work. Well, thanks. And, and I've become a big fan of the, of the, fan of the podcast. Uh, you've had so many episodes recently. I don't know how you've been finding the time to do it. Thank you. I don't know. It, it all. It, it, I started during COVID because I really wanted to talk to people, you know, outside my. I love my family very much, but I wanted to talk to people outside of my family, uh, and uh, it feels a little self-absorbed. But I'm having so much fun that I'm still doing it, and so I'll. I'll I, I concede the self-absorption, but still, it's it's fun. I love talking to people like you. Well, you, you've had amazing guests. It's. Uh, it's Thank you. Uh, I think your listeners are going to be like, who you're having? No, no, they're not. No, they're not. Because Jeremy <laughs> is incredibly thoughtful and smart and willing to say things at times other law professors are not willing to say. So, um, And we have, we have been friends for a while. And you've reviewed my work. I've reviewed your work. So we know each other well. And we're not going to agree on everything today. In fact, I think we're going to have some pretty serious disagreements, which always makes things fun. Um, Jeremy is working on an ongoing project called Originalism and its Discontents. Of course, you know, that's partly explains maybe why he maybe why he's read some of my work. Um, but let's 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 begin with this. Let's begin with this. Do you think you could define originalism today in any kind of coherent way? So, uh, you know, I think that's part of the challenge of being a critic of originalism. Pretty much no matter what you say, there's going to be some significant originalists who are going to say, but that's not my position. Um, <laughs> And so, I mean, it's now I think best understood as a as a family, right? Yeah. Of, uh, of of methodological approaches, and it's a pretty dysfunctional family. You know, <laughs> um, they, they they have their they, I mean, I think they're they're very they're so excited to be part of a movement that seems like it's in the ascendancy, that they try not to air their dirty laundry in public. Right. Um, you know, any any version of originalism will do. But but, you know, if you put them side by side, and I think this is, you know, what what originalism as faith is partly about. Right. Yeah. It's incoherent. Yeah. Um, uh, let me take a moderator's or host privilege uh, to tell a story I, I've never told ever in public before. But you were there that day, I think. So I want to I want to tell this story. Um, a few years ago, the originalism conference at San Diego, which is the originalism conference there is every year. Um, was very nice to, to, to do a thing on my book, which was at then that point in draft. And, um, and that was nice because they, most of the people in that room don't like my work and et cetera. And uh, anyway, so I did my thing and um, I said exactly what you just said um, and, and then demonstrated what you just said. And I got a lot of pushback, of course, and bad looks and mean looks. And afterwards, Michael McConnell, who's been on this podcast, um, came up to me and whispered in my ear, there's nothing wrong with what you said. In fact, it's mostly right. <laughs> and that kind of made my life. And that, that, people don't know Michael McConnell is one of the leading originalists, leading conservatives, former 10th Circuit judge, um, and, a, and a star of that side of the equation. And uh, that meant a lot to me um, that day. And you were very supportive that day as well, I should say, and that night. So anyway, going, going back to it, um, you have written, I think, one of the more important articles about originalism that, that maybe hasn't gotten the attention it should get, although I tried to give it a lot of attention. It shows you my reach. Um, you wrote about Justice, you, you wrote about Justice Marshall, um, not Thurgood Marshall, um, <laughs> but the great Chief Justice. And your point, which was so valid, I'd like you to expound on it, was that Marshall's way of deciding cases was clearly not originalist, but it wasn't non-originalist. It was pluralistic, which is how judges have been deciding cases since then. Is that a fair summary of how you think Marshall decided cases? It is. So now nobody has to read that 100-page article. <laughs> um, I mean, so, you know, when I started work on my on my project, which is supposed to be an intellectual history of originalism, yeah. I was going to start in the 60s because that's when I think, you know, what we now talk about as originalism really began. And then I started, you know, hanging out 
uh, with you and <laughs> the other uh, folks interested in originalism. Um, and the folks on the other side of the debate, some of them are very insistent that originalism is has always been with us, that it is, uh, you know, that it informs our uh, methodolo methodology of constitutional interpretation since the founding. And so my, my sabbatical, when I was going to start, like, seriously, you know, writing the book, I decided instead I needed to go back to the 18th century and the early republic and figure out what what whether there was anything to that. Um, and, you know, I mean, there are there are times when uh, representatives of the Marshall Court and Marshall himself can sound originalist. That is, they can sound textualist right. or they can sound uh, intentionalist or they can sound like they care about the public meaning, the ordinary meaning of, of terms at the time. Um, but like you said, they're also pluralists. There are other things that they will bring uh, to the text. Um, and this isn't just, you know, and, and that's that's Marshall's inheritance from the common law tradition and the, stat the tradition of statutory interpretation that was around at the time. Uh, and so uh, so I concluded that what what Marshall and the and the early courts did was, they would apply various interpretive modalities to the problem at hand. And their approach to those interpretive modalities was not just pluralistic, but non-hierarchical. Right. And so if you have two modalities that conflict, then there's no way to choose between them except with reference to your own personal values, whatever those are. Right. And so that's, I know you objected to this, but, I, I, but I'm still standing, Jack Balkan persuaded me to, get, to go this way and I still think he's right. I called it second order ipsa dixit because it's not unreasoned decision-making. They, they reason to a certain point and then where the modalities are in conflict because they're non-hierarchical pluralists, that's the ipsa dixit moment where they choose to go one way rather than another. I didn't object to that. I actually was incredibly excited about that. I remember calling up Mark Tushnet and saying, my friend Jeremy has written this piece, and I think you should read it, because not about the martial history part, which, of course, Tushnet knows, but about the Ipsy Dixit moment part. So let's get into that for a minute, because that is such a wonderful way of describing what the Supreme Court does, which is another way of saying what it does is not originalism most of the time. I think if I understood your argument about the ipsy-dixit moment correctly, in most hard cases, and probably most even appellate cases, not even the Supreme Court, just in appellate courts where there's no binding precedent that, you know, is, is right on point, which in the Supreme Court's case is always, because they're not bound by it, there comes a moment in time where the legal materials either run out or they conflict with each other or they just can't do the job. And then there's an assumption the court makes that decides the case. That assumption is often not explicated fully, is often a value judgment, and is often extra legal. Is, is, that, is that a fair summary of your point there? Yeah, I think that's right. And uh, I mean, I hate to do this, but to remind you of what I, what I, where I think we disagree. Okay. You, did, you didn't want me to call it second order ipsa dixit. You wanted me to call it just ipsa dixit. Um, Maybe as an editing and, thing, that's right. That was more a selling thing, though. I, I don't mind the substantive way you're saying that. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, but but see, I do think there's a difference because, I mean, maybe it's a difference of degree or nuance, but I still think the court is constrained. They can't do whatever they want. There's, 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 a, there's a, a, a menu of methodological inter, uh, approaches, interpretive methodologies that are available to them right they can't go outside of that toolkit without looking foolish um uh but 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 then that said with within within that uh that caveat aside there comes a time as you described where the modalities aren't in agreement and they have to appeal to something extra legal to decide the case so i i think we do disagree on this in, in one maybe serious sense although it probably is a question of degree, although I'm not, I'm not 100% sure of that. You say they're constrained. Um, my public position many times on that point 
is they are only constrained by what they think they can get away with. Now, I think you might say if they said we're deciding this case because we like the Red Sox, that would be off by the by, uh, that would be off the menu, and they would never do that anyway, and that's a constraint. What I say to you is the only reason they would say we're doing this because we like the Red Sox is because they can't get away with that. Is so I'm not I'm not sure if constraint only comes from what you think you can get away with. That's a very different kind of constraint than the kind of constraint we usually talk about, I think. So, I mean, I think that uh, <clears throat> you, you could phrase it that way. It's just that there's, I think there are a lot more constraints and they can't get away long term uh, with things, uh, with, with, with a lot of things. So I think the constraints are very significant. I think. Like, I mean, for example, one of the interesting things I learned about uh, in reading up on the Marshall Court um, and the, the pre-Marshall Court is that there's a court culture uh, and court, court culture is indeed a constraint. Uh, you might not know it, but or actually maybe it's really obvious. I mean, maybe some of the vitriol in Justice Scalia's opinions, his dissents, is really a product not of his indifference to what people think, but that he cares so deeply and it's so frustrating to him. Um, and so now he acts out, he acted out. Um, he may still be acting I'm out, just, who knows? Sorry? He may still be acting out, who knows? I have this sense that much of our downfall can be attributed. I'm kidding, go ahead, keep going. Right, so, <laughs> but, but, so, uh, so I think, you know, they're listening. I mean, that's why the justices are out there, right, Justice Barrett, Justice Alito, Justice Thomas, are now all out there trying to convince the world uh, that they're apolitical because they're not getting away with it, because <laughs> they're constrained, because they're forced to write legal opinions that justify their decisions. And that subjects them to the sort to sorts of scrutiny that politicians don't really face, because politicians don't really have to give reasons for everything they do. Yeah, I, I, when you say they get away with, uh, see, I, I'm not, I'm not sure. So, so um, Ernie Young, who's no liberal by any means, incredibly thoughtful law professor, um, uh, Adam Winkler, a liberal but incredibly thoughtful law professor, have both talked about how, talk about getting away with, talking about how the court took the Fourteenth Amendment, designed to help the uh, formerly enslaved people now come into society on an equal basis and turned that in the late 19th century for almost 70 years to an amendment protecting railroads and big businesses and absolutely turning away from what we know was the purpose of the 14th Amendment, which was to help the formerly enslaved people could be, be free and equal. They got away with that. Jeremy, they did. I mean, they got wavered from 1880 or something to 1954 and really to 1964. That's a long, long time to get away with something, no? Something not legal, something completely at odds with text and history. Well, so again, I mean, uh, this sort of strays beyond originalism yeah. into our into yeah. second topic, yeah. but, you know, the courts themselves don't do that much, right? There's a broader know. political culture in which they operate, right? And so, I mean, this is sort of, you know, my main message uh, pa past originalism is that I still believe that the courts are the least dangerous branch and that they are the least broken branch and that the problems that you attribute to the court are really problems of our broader political culture uh, that, you know, the executive branches, both on the federal level and the state level, abuse their power, and legislatures don't do their jobs. They delegate. That is, I mean, uh, Je Jeffrey Tubin did end, I believe, either begin or end the nine. The book has a number of terrible mistakes in it, which I wrote about. But he did end it with, we get the Supreme Court we deserve, which I guess is somewhat your point. So it's partly that, but it's also partly that, I, that you know, yes, the, the court has been complicit in a lot of the, you know, worst parts of our history and the worst parts of our legal culture. But 
the court, you know, the court, the Supreme Court, as you know, decides, you know, now 50 cases a, uh, a year plus the shadow docket. docket. It used to be 70. It used to be 150, you know, Jeremy. It used to be 150, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah. But still, even 150, right? I mean, political branches make 150 constitutional decisions every day. Yeah, but okay. But I, 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 I want to get back to the Marshall Court. But before I do, hold on a second. Georgia wants to outlaw all abortions. It cannot or does not. Chicago wants to outlaw all handguns. It, it, it cannot. Georgia State would probably like to have a quota instead of our behind the scenes, you know, diversity things we do. We cannot. And I could go on and on and on. When that, it may be, it's closer to 65 to 70 decisions a year, of which we only care about seven or eight. But Jeremy, those seven or eight bind all 50 states, all 300 million American people plus, and, and defines who we are as a country. Well, and I think that's right. Uh, but, it, I, at, you know, descriptively accurate, but also incomplete. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> because, you know, uh, what did you say? Georgia, Georgia would like to ban, ban all abortions, abortion, yeah. but it can't. Yeah. But, but in fact, right, a lot of states pretty much have. Right? Not, it's not, almost impossible no, not, the, no, no, middle class and rich people aren't being thrown in jail for having abortions in those states, and they won't be well, after they're not being thrown in jail. But, but of course, middle class and rich people can get abortions whether or not abortions are legal. True. in their states. True, fair enough. Right? So, so the populations that are mostly affected by these laws are indeed, uh, you know, deprived of their of their rights that the court, the Supreme Court has tried to protect. Yeah, um, I, I don't know. So, I, yeah. Do you think our or do you think our discourse over guns, abortion, affirmative action would be different if the court were to say tomorrow, because I'm I advocate for this, all three issues: affirmative action, guns, abortion, and everybody knows I'm pro-choice all the way down. But for those three issues, return it to the people. You guys debate it. You guys talk about it. You guys figure it out. We're done. We're out. Think discourse goes up or down? Um. It's so hard to imagine, right, that world. I mean, I've, you know, yeah. my entire adulthood has been post-Roe. Uh, uh, Me too. <laughs> so, 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 so it is hard to, I mean, it, it's very hard to go back. I don't know how, I, I don't, and, and of course, right, Roe, Roe has given us the politics that we have today. Yes. But maybe if it weren't Roe, it would have been something else, right? No. Um, no. <laughs> there's, there's plenty of things to have culture wars about. Right? Yeah. We we can have culture culture wars about about transgender access to bathrooms and right I mean things that are so remote from the lived experience of most Americans on a daily basis and yet they think these are the crucial issues, right? Yeah. So so I so I don't know the answer to that question, but you know I am concerned that see I mean to me uh, abortion is 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 different from gun rights because abortion isn't to me an equal protection question and not a fundamental right protection. Uh, question, um, and so I, I, I would worry. You're not based on, the, of course, the legal reasoning of Roe, but uh, on the basis of Justice Ginsburg's arguments and Jack Balkan has also argued, yeah. you know, this way. Um, I'd worry about uh, women in conservative states uh, not having access. And then, to me, I'm not really concerned about what the, whether it's a huge rhetorical issue or not. I'm concerned about the real right. cost on real lives that would take. So I, I think this is a hard debate. This is and this is tough stuff. And counterfactuals are always, you know, really hard to discuss. Um, I am very concerned about women everywhere having access to affordable, safe health care. I also don't think Donald Trump ever becomes president without the cons constitutionalization of Roe. And I also think every issue feminists care about other than abortion, other than abortion, have been dramatically hurt by the constitutionalization of Roe, especially, I think this is a hard question, if they'd written it as an equal protection case, and if we talked about it as equal protection, my general cynicism is American people don't care about reasoning and it wouldn't have mattered. But it might have mattered to the Federalist Society. It might have. It might have mattered in 1982 to, to Bo I mean, Bork and Scalia and Steve Calabresi. I mean, Calabresi eventually adopts a very pro-woman uh, interpretation of, of the 14th Amendment, so much so where he says same-sex marriage is, can be banned as an originalist matter as gender discrimination. 
That's Steve Calabresi, for those who don't know, co-founder of the Federalist Society. If in 1983, he's wrestling with equal, equal rights for women, not fundamental rights under the due process clause, maybe things change. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know when Calabresi became woke Calabresi. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if he would have responded the same way. Maybe not. Maybe not. Yeah, I, I do think that's how the, I, we agree that debate should be on equality grounds, not fundamental right grounds. Um, I want to go back to Marshall, Marshall Court for one second because I, I did love your – it's one of those articles – I mean, and I don't mean this – there are a lot of people who write law review articles that are great that don't get the attention they deserve, you're one of them, and not being in a, an elite school, you're, neither you nor I are at an elite school, makes it harder for us. To, to, and, and, but this Marshall article are, is really great. Um, and I want to ask you one, one kind of hard question about it because it involves friends of ours, frankly, because um, we are friends with numerous originalists. But I don't understand how anyone can take seriously, maybe you can make this easy for me, in Gibbons versus Ogden, 18-something, Marshall says that the Commerce Clause reaches, if, I'm paraphrasing just a little bit, economic activity that affects more states than one. The, the key word in that in what, is effects. That's Marshall's word. It's not your word. It's not my word. It's a word from the person who was there at the time. Justice right. Thomas says, as an original matter, the Commerce Clause should not be read to reach commerce uh, economic activities that just affect commerce. I think I think Randy Barnett agrees with that. I think a lot of academic originalists agree with that, which is in effect them saying they know more about the original Constitution than John Marshall. That drives me nuts. Does that not drive you nuts? Um, <laughs> uh, so, I mean, it, it used to drive me nuts when. I didn't care about originalism at all because, <laughs> right? I mean, because, I mean, I just read the conversation, right? I mean, I grew up, right? It wasn't until 1996 right. that that the court first started chipping away at the Commerce Clause, right? right. So through 1937 and 1996, Congress just has to say commerce. Right. And they can pass anything they want. Right. Right. And so that was always my assumption. It also always just made perfect sense to me. Right. That, of course... You know, we need the national government to deal with problems that the states can't deal with effectively because of coordination problems or whatever. Which is why Marshall said more states than one. It has to affect more more states. Sorry, let me interrupt, but go ahead. Right. No, you're right. You're right. I mean, so, so, but now that, you know, so, so it made perfect sense to me and anybody who argued contrary just seemed to me to be perverse. I mean, it just doesn't, you can't run a country that way, a country of this magnitude right. that but, you know, now that I've read more of them, I still don't agree with it, but I have more sympathy. I mean, to them, that's Marshall at his most federalist. That's Marshall just doing the thing you hate, making stuff up <laughs> um, that isn't clearly in the Constitution um, and that doesn't take seriously the very significant contrary voices that were concerned about state sovereignty. When you say it's just Marshall making stuff up, yes, but... It's quite, as you just said, it, it's quite the reasonable view of the Commerce Clause that it affects right. economic activities that affect more states than one. And when you say he made it up, you know, it's one thing for Justice Thomas to make it up in 1996, looking back almost 200 years, well, more than 200 years. Yeah. It's another thing for someone who was there and was involved in the debates at the time to say it. Um, I, of course, he had a political agenda. No, no, no. Quite. We we know this. That's that's not debatable. Um, but you know, he he didn't. He provided some evidence for his beliefs. And again, I think if Randy were here, he might say to you, there are other ways to run a country. And no, we don't need the Congress regulating the economy that way. And the private markets will take care of it. And people should be free to bargain however they. And all the policy issues that are reasonable policy debates to have. It's when they say our view of the original understanding is superior to Marshall's that I get a little bit nervous. <laughs> right. So, I mean, this is a little bit awkward ground for you, though, right? Because usually your stance would be we should defer to the political branches. Courts should defer to the political branches. Yes. Um, but Marshall's not speaking as a member of the political branch. He's 
he's um, you know he he he's giving his view of the Constitution. No, but Jeremy, in in Gibbons, as you know, he spends a lot of that opinion saying our job is to defer to the political branches. So the only says the only the only limit on this power are other constitutional provisions, which we agree with. You can't regulate commerce by imposing cruel and unusual punishments or whatever. Right. And then he spends a lot of time time if you don't like this, vote him out. If you don't like what they're doing. You know, it's the, he, he talks about that throughout the entire opinion. So, no, I, I think Marshall, it's a very deferential opinion. I'm okay with judges saying let's defer. <laughs> well, but the, so it's one thing to defer to political processes, another thing to defer to Congress's stated understanding of the limits of the Commerce Clause. And I, I haven't looked at Gibbons in a while. Yeah. I mean, is that what he's saying? Is yeah. he saying Congress considered? Yes. No, no. What and, he's saying. What, what he is saying is, well, I mean, it's a hard, okay, so for the non-lawyers in the room, if there are any, um, Gibbons involved Congress uh, giving a, a, a license to a guy to run a steamboat on the Hudson River, which at the time was under a monopoly to Robert Livingston and Robert Fulton, those names might sound familiar, um, to, to, to engage in commerce on the Hudson River, which was a huge deal in 1790, huge, huge deal to have a monopoly over commerce flowing through the Hudson River. So they licensed this guy. They claim that interferes with their monopoly. They claim Congress has no power over navigation. And that's where it's hard, because we all agree carrying goods for profit from New York to New Jersey by ship is commerce among the states. I mean, that I think even Randy would agree. I hope Randy would agree with that. Everybody agrees with that. So right. Marshall didn't have to go into the merits that much. But what he did say was very clearly where it's commerce affecting more states than one, the only limit, other than those in the textual constitution, is the political process. So he is deferring to the political, in fact, it is, I don't think he uses the word Congress. I think he uses the phrase political process or some analogy like that. So no, I think it's a very deferential opinion, exactly right. Where there's doubt, defer. So yeah, yeah. so, so, so I, I think we're in agreement. I mean, I'm just, uh, you, the, the so the, the the step that's missing yes yeah is clear understand the, the I'm not it's not clear to me whether the breadth of that opinion is uh necessary given the legislation at issue which fair. is clearly interstate commerce fair. or whether it's just martial fair no that that that's fair um I I do think the fact that he uses that he uses the word effect makes Marshall's argument that we shouldn't use that word suspicious at least i mean if nothing else all right we'll 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 we'll, we'll leave that there um so i want to talk to you just for a few minutes about new originalism and then we'll talk about court reform where we're definitely going to disagree uh, but but i want to talk about new originalism for a minute if you had to define the quote new originalism how would you define it huh so there's a few different strains of it, right? I mean, yeah. one thing that's clearly new about the new originalism is, is that they they throw off intentionalism and replace it with textualism, right? Um, and 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 uh, and that's really, I mean, that really helps them over a crisis because <laughs> the first generation originalism had just been demolished. I mean, right? right? I mean, I don't. Th there are very few intellectual takedowns as thoroughgoing. <laughs> as you know what Jeff Powell and Paul Brest did right. to, to originalism. And so so the, the, the move to textualism was necessary for, for when you say textualism, you mean original public meaning. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Um, and then and then the second move, which I think is what what was grist to your mill, is that <laughs> new 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 originalism recognizes that sometimes original meaning runs out right and where original meaning runs out and, and right so you know one thing that i keep on saying i think it's a quotable quote but nobody will quote me it's very <laughs> frustrating I, I think what what separates new originalists from living constitutionalists or non-originalists is disagreements about when and how frequently original meaning runs out right for me and you, I think originalism, original meaning runs out all the time. Right. Like texts are ambiguous, right? I think this is what you and Chris Green keep going round and round yes. about. Right? Yes. Um, uh, but uh, in any case, and when original meaning runs out, then at least sometimes the new originalists conceded 
we're left to our own devices, just like <laughs> not originals, right? right? I think, I mean, I think Keith Whittington is is quite open about that, and and Randy Barnett used to be. I don't know if he's still. You know, he's changed. I'll, we'll go down in a second, but go ahead. Yeah, Randy's changed on this, but I'll, but go ahead. Okay. Yeah. No, that, that, that's really. I mean, that's okay. all I had to say about new originals. So does it so. take? Does it? Does it take? Is it really controversial that original meaning runs out? in virtually every hard con law case the Supreme Court decides? Like, how can that be controversial? I mean... So, I mean, I think this is where, again, right? I mean, this is why it's originalism and it's discontents, right? Yeah. It, it keeps on butting up against inevitable problems with its reasoning. And there's always a deus ex machina. I think this is why new originalism needed to be supplemented with the work of Mike Rappaport, um, and um, John McGinnis, and then the, the, the latest, right? Yes. Uh, Will Bode and, yeah. and Stephen Sachs, the original methods originalist and original law originalism, where they argue that you can overcome that textual ambiguity by using the proper methods, right? And the proper methods, which, right? So like McGinnis and Rappaport look a lot like me in that they recognize that there was methodological pluralism, but they are hierarchical and I'm not. Right. 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 Uh, and and yet still, like, I can't quite see how they always get to this confidence, <laughs> and Lee Strang is the same way, that there's going to still be one right meaning despite linguistic ambiguity. Right. So to put the lid on this topic, um, there was a time when Randy Barnett more or less took the position that the in the construction zone, normative values separate from originalism have to kick in. His is libertarian, but he said there were others like my deferentialism, he said, is, a, is, a, is an appropriate posture at that point. There are all kinds of postures. That was once his position. He thinks he's moved away from that by writing with my friend Evan Burnick, who I love. I love Evan. Hi, I love you. Um, my, my friend Evan Burnick, they wrote a thing called the letter and spirit, you know, trying to unify originalists. Um, which is even more living constitutionalist than anything Randy had ever written before, because once we start looking for the spirit of the First Amendment or the whatever, we are really in, you know, living constitutionalist land, right? Essentially, yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Essentially, yeah. Okay. All right. Let's talk about court reform for a second, because you and I are going to agree on this. Um, I don't understand why after Bush versus Gore, after Shelby County versus Holder, after I can name 10 other cases, um, you don't, my understanding of your position is of the three branches, the court is the least broken and the least, least in need of fix. Yet, think what happens, maybe, if they don't do what they did in Bush versus Gore. And maybe Bush wins anyway, but I know conservatives always say that, but maybe not. And if they don't do that, the whole, not just America. Hi, who is that? This is Phineas. Hi, F Phineas. Hi, Phineas. Phineas is beautiful. Um, you know, if, if it's Gore instead of Bush, we live in a different world. The Supreme Court arguably did that, not to mention Shelby County, where we might live in a different world. So I'm curious why you think, A, the court's not broken, and why you don't think it needs to be fixed. Right. So, um, so... You and I probably agree 95 to 99% of the time <laughs> yeah. about, about which decisions of the Supreme Court we disagree with. Yeah. Um, my problem with court reform is that the remedy is probably worse than the illness. Okay. Because I think long term, well, first of all, right, I'm not an originalist, but I have tremendous respect for the constitutional design as I understand it, which is that, right, there are, it, it's not a wholly democratic constitution, right? There, right. Are, there, are, there are protections against, um, <laughs> he's a terrible cat, terrible. <laughs> Looks like a very um, cute cat to me, but all right. Yeah. There, there are protections against um, against tyranny of the majority. And then there are institutions that are designed to change quickly. That's Congress. There are institutions that are designed to change more slowly. That's the presidency and the Senate. 
And then there are institutions that are supposed to be a built-in conservative break on populism, and that's the court. Uh, and I think it's a really smart design, right? I'm really glad that Marshall had a 30-year reign on the Supreme Court and kept that dose of federalism to save us from Jeffersonian nonsense. Right. Uh, so, uh, so, so I, so the danger that I see in all of these proposals uh, for court reform are twofold. One is that it would, it would, it would change that wonderful balance between long-term positions and short-term positions in our federal government. And then it would also increase the politicization of the court. Uh, and I know you already think it's completely politicized, but I don't agree. And I also think that everything we should do should, should fight back against the politicization of the court rather than enhance it and institutionalize it. Okay, there's a lot, there's a lot there. Let, let me ask you. Um, so when Brutus, who was writing against the Constitution back in 1787 um, or 8, um, trying to convince the people of New York not to ratify it, uh, he made the argument that we can't give judges these, this power. This is crazy. The, the, uh, they have nobody above them, no one to review them, not even heaven itself. And men put in those positions will soon feel free of heaven itself. That's what he said, something like that. Hamilton responds by saying, don't worry about it. They have neither purse nor sword, as you mentioned. Um, and, and most importantly, they're going to only overturn laws when there's an irreconcilable variance between a statute and the Constitution, or it's against the manifest tenor of the Constitution, which is the same thing. Jeremy, that's not our system. That's never been our system. I agree. I'm not against judicial review. People who think I'm against judicial review have me very wrong. I'm in favor of very limited judicial review when the constitutional error is clear, which I think is what Hamilton was saying. But that's never been, since 1857, Dred Scott, that's not been our, our system. So I'm curious how you weigh that into your, it's good to have these checks and balances, separation of powers, because the court has gotten way beyond the original idea of what this court would do. So, so, I mean, you and I are, I think, in total agreement about deference. Again, right? I mean, I, uh, you had Jamal Green on a, a few weeks ago, right? Who? Yeah. Uh, who? Jamal? Who? Jamal. Jamal Green. No, I haven't had Jamal on yet. No. I oh. asked. I asked him. He's been too busy with his book. Wait, I talked about his book a lot, though. Yeah. So, uh, so he's been on so many podcasts. Yeah. I, I yeah. just assumed he'd been yeah. on yours. Not yet. But he constantly, right? So. You know, he's got this alternative uh, approach to rights. Yes. Um, and and when pushed, you know, to say like, you know, people people point out to some opinions that sort of seem in accord with his approach to sort of rights mediation by the courts, um, but with bad results. And he says, yeah, there, there are going to be bad results. <laughs> and I'm sort of the same, I'm the same way, right? I mean, I agree with you that, that your model is right. In most situations, the court should defer. And sometimes they don't do that, and those are bad decisions. Uh, and we have to hope that you know, over time they'll 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 be repealed or revisited or narrowed or whatever. But the other the other thing is, so I agree with you about deference on most things, but I don't agree with you about deference when it comes to equal protection um, and democratic processes. Um, and there, the, the case where I cannot agree with you more is Holder. I mean, Holder is the biggest disaster, Shelby County. Yeah. Uh, because that is one of the areas where the court is supposed to be a sentinel. It is supposed to be the guardian of constitutional norms. Um, and, and it's not. It's, it's, it's completely, not only has it not fulfilled its, its, its constitutional role, uh, but it has sort of gone and joined the other side, the enemies who are trying to break down constitutional norms. But there I just come back to my same tired position, which is all that does, all that is, is the court, the powerless court, facilitating real solid evils that the political branches themselves are enacting. And without the court, with the court just another political branch, we have no check against that. It's an it's an interesting argument. Um, I, I think 
I'll take that. No, 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 no. I, I didn't mean that. Okay, that's fair. I didn't mean that in a negative way at all. I, I do wonder. The strongest argument I think against my view is one of the strongest ones. What you just said is, without the um, fallback of a third branch of government who could do some checking, the political branches might actually be a lot worse than they are, and we both agree they're really bad. Uh, I think so. So, so that's a, that's fair. What I'm not sure about. I'm softening a little about this in my older age, but but I'm but I'm I, I still feel confident making this statement. The court has made the worst of our political branches even worse over the years, and when it tries to correct it, this, and this is really the point, Jeremy, that I don't I don't know your view on what I'm about to say. I really I, I mean you and I have talked so much. This is but I don't know your view on this. Um, when it comes to progressive things. The court either ninety five percent of the time rejects it, or the five percent of the time it does something progressive. The um, backlash in the political sphere is much worse than whatever gains progressive got from the court decision. Scalia once said the whole purpose of judicial review is to stay in the past. That's our job as judges is to make sure we don't depart from the past. So by definition, the court is an incredibly conservative organization. I think that slows down progress. Um, and I don't, I, I think that gets in the way. Certainly Congress has been to the left of the Supreme Court for most of our history. I don't think that's debatable. The states were a different matter. But the civil rights statutes in 1875 struck down by the court, um, uh, the Voting Rights Act, uh, it's all. I mean, the, it, Congress is always to the left of the court um, or most of the time. So I'm not. So I, I think the court does make it worse. Is the bottom line on that? I, I, I think, I think staying out of things unless the equal protection clause or the political process is at stake would help, but that's not what they do. So, you know, I mean, I th I think you tell a good story, and it's a true story. <laughs> it's an incomplete story. I mean, Maggie, you had you did have Maggie Blackhawk, right? Yes. Um, she was that great. I'm remembering correctly, yes. and 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 she points out, right? I mean left and right, like there's this whole vast area of U.S. law, which is actually constitutional law, which is Indian law. Yes. And the left-right distinctions are less meaningful there, right? Because Gorsuch is great for them, yeah. and, and, yeah. and so is Thomas, yeah. apparently. Um, there are other things, right? So I, I, don't think it's, I don't think what you just said is accurate as to LGBTQ. Uh, the, the court has been, you know, thank, thank you, Justice Kennedy, great on recognizing LGBTQ plus rights. Um, I don't think the backlash has made things worse. I think actually the court's winning. The court led the way. Um, okay, I don't, I, think I, I, don't, I don't know if we get Trump without Obergefell. Probably not. Probably not. When he was saying we want originalists like Scalia on the court, what he was saying was we don't want abortion and we don't want gay rights. 20, 23%, something like that, voted for Trump the first time because of the Supreme Court, most important issue was is yeah, Obergefell. I think, that, I think that's much. It's hard. It's hard to disaggregate, but I think that's much more about abortion than about Obergefell. I'm not sure. But, but then, leaving that aside, right? Uh, the Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration, was absolutely lawless in its conduct of the war on terror. The court put a stop to a big part of that. Right with with Rasul and Hamdam and Handi and Boumedian, I mean that took something, right? That was a real that was a real check on political branches completely out of control, that were undermining the rule of law in this country. And then if you look what happened in the Trump election, right, the political branch was all pro coup, the GOP is still pro coup. The courts did their job, even the Supreme Court, refusing to hear that crazy Texas case, right? They saved our democracy, such as it is, right? So, so I, you know, I, I think there's a lot of stories to be told here, and it's not, it's not uh, univalent. I agree with you about Trump. I, I never said the court is always wrong, not a position of mine. The court's been right sometimes. I agree with you about equal protection, by the way. When people ask me what cases you think were correct when the court struck down laws, Brown, Obergefell, maybe a couple others. Um, I have trouble with, with Reynolds versus Sims, but let's not get into that right now. But I want to talk about Boumediene, though, because I think that's, I think it's misleading. I honestly think it's misleading what you said. The issue in Boumediene was do detainees at Guantanamo Bay have habeas corpus rights? 
and five to four with Justice Kennedy being the swing vote, the court says, yes, they have habeas corpus rights. And that is somewhere around um, 2008, I believe. Um, if you talk to virtually any DC Court of Appeals judge, you'll hear them say, the Supreme Court said nothing else, didn't give them any clue as to how to handle those habeas petitions. They left us hanging. We're not going to grant habeas petitions when we have any doubt whatsoever about the person being a terrorist or not. You had one DC Circuit judge even doing something pretty, only Posner and Wilkinson has ever, have ever done, which is calling out the Supreme Court by name, saying this was a symbolic decision that the court has never backed up. I think Boumediene is a great example of the court saying something that sounds good, but actually had no effect. There's not been a big difference between saying they didn't have habeas rights and saying they have habeas rights, but they're never going to win, <laughs> which is in fact what happened, almost what happened. So I'm not, Boumediene sounded good, and I liked it because I predicted Kennedy would do that at the WLS conference in Cleveland in 2008 on a panel with Erwin Chemerinsky and um, uh, Lee Epstein, and the whole world looked at me, and they looked at me like, are you crazy? I'm like, no, Kennedy is going to vote for them. Trust me on this. But then they did nothing, nothing, nothing to back it up. Ever. Yeah. That's the last Guantanamo case the Supreme Court has taken, 2008. This was in the news last week, just last week. There's a habeas petition sitting there for 12 years, and, the, and, and I guess Alito, maybe, or I forget who it was, but one of the conservative judges was like, how can this habeas petition still be pending? And the answer is the D.C. Circuit doesn't know what to do with it because they've gotten no guidance. So I'm not sure Boumediene is an example of what you're talking about at all. That's my pushback. Well, so, so you're saying it could be better. <laughs> and I'm saying it could be a hell of a lot right, of worse, enough. right? Fair enough. Because, because right, what was what was Gitmo all about? Gitmo was all about John Yu yeah. telling uh, yeah. legal counsel uh, for the White House, "Hey, let's put these guys in Gitmo," and the, and Afghanistan's not a country, so the Geneva Conventions don't apply. Right. We can do whatever we want there, and Gitmo isn't part of our territory, so no court will ever <laughs> review this ever. Right. It's going to be great, right? <laughs> And the court kept on saying no, no, no. And every time, every time, regardless how many times the court the court said no, the executive branch would come back with the same brief saying, you don't have any jurisdiction over this case because you don't have any jurisdiction over Gitmo in any way. Whatever the executive says goes when it comes to the law of armed conflict or foreign You're right. Affairs. You're right. That's well so said. It could have been a lot worse. That, that's well said. It could have. That, that's my new slogan. That's my new slogan for the Supreme Court. It could be a lot worse. <laughs> I like it. I like it. <laughs> I'm going, that's going to be the, the lead-in for this podcast. The Supreme Court. We both agree it could be a lot worse. Uh, I, I, it could be worse. I'm not sure it could be a lot worse. Um, I want to talk. Let's finish up with court reform because I'm I'm hoping I can convince you that there are some elements of court reform that absolutely need to happen and should have happened a long time ago. When people today talk about court reform, they're of course talking about packing the court, stacking the court. You know, I'm not in favor of that. I'm in favor of balancing the court so it does less. I don't want seven liberals on the court. Never have. Don't want that. But let's talk about some core reforms that really should happen. The nine justices in the United States Supreme Court are the only judges in America, all of America, in any state, at any level, who are under no ethics code whatsoever. That I can't agree with that. They need an ethics code. They need an ethics code. So we agree that should happen. Yeah, in fact, so, you know, uh, back when I was at Valpo, we had this Monsanto lecture on ethics. Yeah. And Steve Lubit from uh, Northwestern came. I'm going to be on a panel with him, I think, soon, but go ahead. And, 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 and it was all about that. Yeah. And so that was, that was like 10 years ago. Right. And ever since then, I'm like, yeah, like, yeah. why isn't this happening? This is so obvious. Right. So, so, so there we're agreed. Okay. And Jeremy, I do think leaving aside the practicalities, which there should be an ethics code. So Scalia and Thomas don't go to the Koch brothers retreat two summers in a row in the mid 1990s. Um, and it wasn't where they went and gave a talk and then left. They stayed the weekend, ate the food and hobnobbed with the Koch brothers and their clientele. So that was really bad. Um, I don't think a lower federal court judge does that. I don't think they can. Um, but to me, it's also symbolic. It's not just that they don't have an ethics code. It's that we put up with the idea they don't have an ethics code. And, and that's insane to me. I mean, okay, cameras, cameras in the room. We may disagree on this. I don't know, but isn't it long past time to see them in action? I mean, come on. So uh, this isn't a big issue for me. Yeah. I really enjoyed um, during COVID hearing it live. Yeah. But you know, I mean, one thing that bothers you is the celebrity justice thing. Yeah. 
Uh, and I'm, I'm worried that TVs and the camera would, would make that a bigger problem. I, I don't think it's as big a problem as, as you do, but uh, I don't yeah. think it would help. Uh, I think their mystery is their celebrity, Jeremy. Sorry? Their mystery is their celebrity. Oh, so if we televise yes. them and yes. we catch them picking their noses. Yes, yes, then... yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, no, it's not just that. It's, it's what I'm describing is reality. They work in a big marble temple on a hill. They only come out to sell their books and occasionally give talks to the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society. I think the mystery is a big part of it. Let's demystify it. That's where I'm coming from on it. Yeah. So I actually don't have a problem with the pageantry of the court. Okay. Uh, I think the work there is serious and solemn. Um, I love that we have you know, a sort of palace to justice. Um, if only it were a palace to justice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, I mean, you know, I mean, again, that's part of the culture that I think should constrain them. If they, right. you know, have, if, if they're awake to what's going on around them and the majesty of the tradition that they're a part of and the seriousness of uh, the task, all of those things uh, should matter to them. Fair enough. So, yeah. So I, I don't. So I don't. You know, I don't have real strong views about about television right. uh, about uh, about broadcasting the court. I do have worries about soundbiteification and editing and. You That's know, already happening. Though. But that could happen anyway. That's true. Right? I have a colleague. I, I, like I said, I liked. I liked. I liked uh, listening to it live much more than I ever expected I would. You you have a strong philosophical background. I, I have I have a colleague who just retired recently, um, who had a PhD in philosophy. And he and I are friends, and we debated for 30 years his idealistic view of the court, which actually sounds a lot like your, I mean, he concedes all of the horror that you and I are talking about, about Dred Scott and civil rights cases and, 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 and Shelby County and all that stuff. You know, he, he'd be the first person to jump on, jump on that bandwagon. But then he says, but it's really important that we try to make it the best it can be. And that we it, and that and that we we impose upon them, at least the idea they should take it really seriously. That they be the best they can be. Um, maybe my lack of philosophical background, my on the groundness, as I think Chris Greenwood accused me of being, my, my too much on the ground, gets in the way of this. I, I just see no evidence that they, in big cases, that they take their role seriously. What I see is, what I would do on the Supreme Court and what you would do on the Supreme Court on issues that we feel deeply about. Since we have no boss, we can't be impeached and we can't be removed, we're going to do what we want and then dress it up as if we got there through something other than the Ipsy Dixit moment. And I don't think they get there any place other than the Ipsy Dixit moment. Um, another question about court reform. Um, wait, wait, wait. Yeah. Can I rebut that? Yes, you can. Yes, you can. So, I was trying to slide that one in without it, without it but go ahead. <laughs> so... So I, 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 I don't come to my position because I'm some sort of philosophical idealist. Okay. I, I come to my position because I'm a pragmatist, okay. which is also part of why I have a special affinity for Justice Breyer and still love him a lot more than the rest of right. the left loves him. Right. Um, but, uh, and, and pragmatism is, is, can be politically anywhere, right? I mean, I think the, the two big pragmatists on the court right now are Breyer and Alito. Right. Uh, regardless of how much he pretends to be a text. He just said he was an originalist last week for the first time, I think, two weeks ago, for the first time, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because that's the, that's the right pragmatic position for him. Right. Um, but, uh, but, 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 but the appearances uh, do matter. I think it's important to be invested in the court, and uh, I think it's important. I, I'm, as, as, as down as I am on the Roberts court, uh, I still am very concerned that it's so unpopular right now um, because lo loss of faith in our public institutions does not lead to good places. It leads to fascist places. Um, and and so, so, so it's not that I want to believe, it's not that I think it's absolutely necessary to believe, it's that I think we're best off if we believe you know, and get other people to it, believe. It's interesting. I think that's very well said, Jeremy. I, I think, you know, well, the place we're at now, I tell my students that Constitution, I, I, since you mentioned pragmatism, not me, I'm bringing up Judge Posner because I always do. Um, but, but I always talk in my class about how Posner yeah, said. it's a bit late. 
So it is late. It, it, it took us 55 minutes to get Judge Posner. That's a long time for me. Um, but his famous line that, you know, constitutional law, when you say a margarita is better than a cosmopolitan, what you're really saying is a margarita tastes better to you than a cosmopolitan, not that it's objectively better. I, my, my take on that is we can have a good debate of whether Godfather 1 is better than Godfather 2. What we're really asking is which do we prefer more because there is no right answer. He says, then, when, let me finish one sentence, and he says, constitutional law is not about logic, it's about preference. I'm so, go ahead. So, so that's the, the other side, and this is sort of the Jack Balkinian point uh, about, so you think they vote conservative because that's their preference. No, I think they vote their preferences whether it's conservative or not. Kennedy voted well, his preferences right, for right, right. I know, I know. But my point is that they are conservative because of their preferences. It's not that they are like, they, they think about this. They think about the entire Constitution through a conservative lens or through a libertarian lens or through a liberal lens or whatever. It's not like you described, like, how do I want this case to come about and then reasoning towards that. You're in the position you are because you see the Constitution a certain way, and things follow from that, right? We may be saying the same thing, but I, but, but I look at it, but, but I think it makes a big difference in terms of, um, in in terms of whether or not the judges are being like hypocrites who are not being honest about but, the but, extent to which their preferences derive their opinions. But, but. I really don't understand that because for to give one of 50 examples, one could, I'll give two examples. Thomas and Scalia voted to strike down every affirmative action law they ever saw. We both know that the original meaning of the 14th Amendment does not justify it, and neither one of them has ever spent one syllable talking about the original meaning of the 14th Amendment when it comes to the affirmative action. The closest is Thomas talks about things happening 20 years later, but they've never talked about the original meaning of the 14th Amendment. Um, a law clerk even wrote that a former Scalia clerk wrote that he wrote a memo to Scalia canvassing the scholarship about the original meaning of the 14th Amendment, how it obviously does not support judicial invalidation of affirmative action programs, and Scalia never mentioned the memo, never talked to him about it, never discussed it. Um, the other example, just this morning, Randy Barnett chimed in on Twitter about something about how liberals want to get rid of the text of the Constitution. And my response was, yeah, anti-commandeering. Where is that in the text of the Constitution? Where is state sovereign immunity against suits from in-state citizens in the Constitution? Ad nauseum. That's, that is hypocrisy, Jeremy. That's hypocrisy all the way down. An originalist upholds affirmative action programs. Right. So, I mean, just to take, the, just to take Randy Barnett, right? I mean, Randy Barnett's whole thing is that uh, you resolve ambiguities in the Constitution in favor of liberty. Yeah. Right. And so I think his anti-commandeering position follows from that, not from his textualism. You su he supplements textualism with a value judgment, and he's he's open about that. Right? He used to he be. be that he used to be open about that. Yeah. He used to. Okay. Read the letter in the spirit. It, it's, it's, it's a very cl cleverly written, smartly written description, accurate of how the Supreme Court, it's like Balkan. And, and Randy has said he agrees with Balkan's view on abortion and originalism. I mean, it's, labels matter. And if Randy had come out and said, Siegel convinced me, I'm a living constitutionalist and I'm proud of it, we, I wouldn't, we wouldn't be having this conversation. That's not what he says. He says, I'm an originalist. Right. But what, okay. Um, I will give you, and I will not interrupt and I will not rebut, the closing words on convincing people listening to this that court reform in the sense of really, really changing the court for political reasons, like FDR wanted to do, uh, is a bad idea. So you're very articulate about that. And I don't, I do respect your views on it, whether I agree with them or not, I respect them quite a bit. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess, you know, the bottom line is that I don't want the court politicized beyond the point that it's already been politicized. And in fact, I would like to claw it back. Um, I mean, I think you had uh, Julian Mortensen. Yes, I love Julian, yeah. Uh, yeah. And you were uh, praising Justice Souter. Yes. 
Um, and I agree with you. I'd like to see more people like Souter and more people like Stevens and yes. more people like I, I would I would put Breyer in that list as well. I don't think he's as easy to pin down politically as I agree. Some of the others. I, I would love to see more of them on the court. I would love to see uh, I would love to see President Biden appoint somebody to the court who's just a good jurist um, and let the cards fall where they may 20 years from now. There's a there's a hesitancy to do that because the other side doesn't play the same game. Yes. Right? But that's because the Republicans have given over to a Schmidian, Carl Schmidian political discourse in which we're friends and enemies and you don't compromise with your enemies. You don't govern on behalf of your enemies. You destroy your enemies. If the left gives into that view of politics, we're done for. I can't think of a better way to close this. Jeremy, thank you so much. This has been Really, if I could talk to you about this stuff forever, as you know. We have talked about it forever, um, but I could do it more. But I think we better stop it there. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. It's, it's been my, a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you.